Please open your Bibles, if you have one, to the Gospel of John, chapter 7. The Gospel of John, chapter 7. And as you turn there, I would ask you to consider, if you could say simply put, what is Jesus' message in John's Gospel? What is his call? What is his invitation? What does he offer? What does he require for what he offers? Jesus uses a number of metaphors. You could probably biblically and faithfully answer that question a number of ways. But at a climactic point in the gospel, presented in a clear um, crescendo, Jesus cries out in the temple. We're just going to look at three verses because I think these three verses, John chapter 7, 37 to 39, um, succinctly, clearly convey Jesus' gospel invitation and call. I think it's worth looking at clearly, understanding clearly. This this Christ who is the Lord's sent one, this Christ who is the Lord's fellow, God's equal, yet not acting independently. What does he offer and what does he require? What, if any, cost is there? What exactly are the terms in which he offers what he offers? That is clearly stated this morning. And so I thought it was worth just looking at three Simple verses in their profundity of Jesus at a pinnacle moment in his ministry crying out. Let's just read John 7, 37 to 39. Then I mean, trust as we go through, we can understand what Jesus' offer is, what he requires, what it means. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Let's pray. Lord God, I echo the words of our our last song. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Help us to understand what so many in Jesus' day did not. That we would there be no mistake over his invitation, what he offers, what he requires, what our response must be. Um, and, and grant us faith that we might respond rightly. In Jesus' name. Amen. I propose we work through this in five points. Five points as we simply go through Jesus' message. In one sense, what Jesus is saying here isn't anything fundamentally new in the gospel. I think it does reach a peak and a crescendo, but its simplicity, its clarity, I think is unmatched. Um, So as we begin, let's consider Jesus' timing. Jesus' timing. You'll see in verse 37, we get a setting. We've moved forward a few days. I'll remind you that chapter 7 takes place within the week-long festival of Israel, the Feast of Booths. Not optional, required for every able-bodied male. And the Feast of Booths, in fact, turn back to uh, Leviticus 23, just to sort of set the context there. Um, Leviticus 23, we'll be quick, frames the Feast of Booths, unlike some of Israel's celebrations, which involve mourning and repentance, like, say, the Day of Atonement or Passover. This is a rejoicing harvest festival. This is exulting that the work of bringing in the harvest is done. 
and everyone gets to build a booth outside of their home, and there's offerings and worship and eating and rejoicing and drinking, and it is a joyful, celebratory event. And so here we read in Leviticus 23, starting in verse 33, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel saying, on the 15th day of this seventh month and for seven days is the feast of booths to the Lord. On the first day shall be a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. For seven days you you shall present food offerings to the Lord. And on the eighth day you shall hold a holy convocation and present a food offering to the Lord. It is a solemn assembly. You shall not do any ordinary work. So when John says on the final or the great day, I take it to mean the eighth day. The solemn assembly. The feast proper is done. The booths have been taken apart or are being taken apart. This is a Sabbath to the Lord. It is a solemn occasion. It's what they're supposed to have learned from the Feast of Booths they've learned. And if you remember from our introduction to this, the Feast of Booths had a couple purposes. I'd say at least three. One, the immediate celebration and rejoicing over the harvest. Recognizing God gives the rain that makes the plants grow. God causes the earth to bring forth fruit. The harvest is brought in. Give the Lord his first fruits. Rejoice in the harvest. But also we know it looks backwards. In Deuteronomy, when the same feast is described, God indicates, I want the Israelites to dwell in booths, tents for this week because I made your fathers dwell in tents in the wilderness. And so the Feast of Booths, even as its first use is to celebrate the current harvest, remembers that ultimately it's always been God and God alone on whom we depend. Seen nowhere more clearly than in the wilderness where God fed them with, with food from heaven and water from a rock. You don't live for 40 years in the desert unless you have massive food stores. And God kept a multi-million group people alive for 40 years, feeding them, giving them water. He was their provision. Miraculously, they depended on him day by day, and he was faithful. And so the Feast of Booths reminds them of that, and ultimately, the current crop, the past faithfulness, is meant to cause us to look forward in faith to God's future faithfulness. That's the point of the feast. You're reminded of God's faithfulness. You see the current faithfulness of his provision, and it inbreeds and creates within us trust in his future provision. So Jesus stands up back in John, back in John, this is the eighth day, a holy convocation, the Sabbath, and, and by saying it this way, there's a sort of crescendo. We're at the climax of the feast. We're at its high point. A week of celebration has taken place. Jesus has already taught in the temple during this week, and now we go from the middle, which is the first time he rose up and spoke. If you look at verse 14, about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up, and that was our first event. And there's a pattern here. In these two events, Jesus teaching in the temple during the Feast of Booths, Jesus speaks, there's a variety of responses, and there's a failed attempt to arrest him. The same thing happens here. Jesus speaks, there's a variety of responses, and there's a failed attempt to arrest him. And we're just looking at what Jesus says. The rest of chapter 7 will be devoted to the responses. And what we're seeing is there's division and confusion and tumult and hubbub about Jesus in Jerusalem. We'll, We'll deal with that, not next week, but the week after. This, this morning, let's just consider the simplicity of Jesus' message. John frames this as a crescendo. The great day, the last day, Jesus stood up. Jesus cried out. John's telling of it brings it to a high point. 
This isn't something Jesus casually says. This is something he is, he is communicating clearly with intensity. And he's already introduced the idea, we saw this last week, that their time is running short. Time is running out. That's part of the reason for the intensity, the urgency. You will seek me. You will not find me, he says. That'll come up again in chapter 8. And then in chapter 12, when Jesus hides himself. And so this message that Jesus has been teaching throughout John's gospel, there's an urgency to it now. We've addressed the notion that the clock is ticking. The clock is ticking. So the timing, eighth day, and then point B, a climactic call. Climactic call. Jesus stood up and cried out. Now he cried out a few days earlier as well, and I failed to draw much attention to it. But in John 7, 28, Jesus proclaimed, cried out, as he taught in the temple, you know me, you know where I come from, but I've not come on my own accord. This is another urgent crying. It's also possible he's crying out just because of how crowded it is. But I think John's telling emphasizes the crescendo. What Jesus is about to say is important. What Jesus is about to say is critical. So we go from Jesus' timing to Jesus' invitation. Jesus' invitation. We're just going to look at this clause by clause. What we've got is an if-then. If condition A is met, then proceed to condition B. And condition A is if anyone thirsts. And then Jesus will tell in the event that someone thirsts what they should do. So first the invitation. If anyone thirsts. This is not a new metaphor. Back in chapter 4 with the woman at the well, Jesus uses this metaphor. He asks her for a drink. She marvels that a Jew is asking a Samaritan for water. He says, well, if you knew who it was you were talking to in the gift of God, you'd ask him and he'd give you living water. Jesus in chapter 6 has talked about eating and drinking his flesh and his blood. So this is not a new metaphor, but I think it comes to a crystallized crescendo here. But first just notice it is a universal offer. It is a universal offer. Whatever it is Jesus is offering is offered to anyone. And, and we, we take that for granted. But for the Jews of Jesus' day, that would be remarkable. It's not, if anyone is circumcised and of the house of Israel and is ceremonially clean, well, then I've got some good things for him. Just if anyone thirsts. Anyone. And this is, again, another note that's been going on ringing in John's gospel. John 3.16, God so loved the world that whosoever John 4, 14, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him. John 6, 51, if anyone eats this bread. John 6, 53, I mean, John 7, 17, if anyone's will is to do God's will. The entry gate of who's able to qualify for what Jesus is about to say is anyone. Now, there's a condition the anyone has to meet, but it is a universal invitation. What that means practically then is we're all anyone's. Everyone in this room isn't anyone. So, so keep listening. It's universal. It goes beyond a particular nation or people. If anyone thirsts. And this is remarkable. What, what is Jesus' condition for what he offers? Need. Lack. And an awareness of need. What, what does it take to get Jesus? You need to want him. You need to be aware of your thirst. You need to be aware of what you need. If anyone thirsts, well, what does that mean? It's clearly a metaphor. What is it a metaphor of? Today, we went off for many answers. You thirst for significance. You thirst for meaning. You thirst for negative self, I mean, positive self-evaluation. You thirst for fulfilled relationships. 
in the Old Testament, and Jesus is in the temple speaking to Jews, this, this thirst language, I think, is a pretty clear referent. And let me read to you a couple passages. Psalm 42, verses 1 and 2. 1 to 3, sorry. A Psalm of David when he was in the wilderness in Judah. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek for you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in your sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life. Psalm 143.6, I stretch out my hands to you. My soul thirsts for you. Psalm, 60, Psalm 42, I'm sorry. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. I think thirsting here is for forgiveness and restoration with God. And I think with forgiveness and restoration of God, your, your life's going to have meaning. And all those, it's not those other things are bad things. They are not ultimate things. The thirst that is required is a longing for forgiveness and restoration with God. This is a God-centered thirst. So what is Jesus has to offer? The condition is recognize you need. This is the problem. Some people think they're just good the way they are. God accepts me just the way I am. I have no need in relationship to God. Then Jesus has nothing for you. If you don't meet condition clause A, do not proceed on to prescription B. There's no good works you need to do. In one sense, this is amazing. What, what you need to bring is negative. Lack, need, emptiness, brokenness. I've said this before. There's no one who is too small, too despised, too broken, too corrupt for Christ. There are far too many who are too large, great, good, wise, and righteous for him. The condition clause for what Jesus offers is only to those who recognize their thirst, who recognize their insufficiency. You do not have what you need. You do not have what you need to make the most important things right. This world is not satisfying you. There is something more you need. You hunger and thirst for God. And you recognize that the reason you don't have God is your sin puts a division between you and him. The reason you're not enjoying God right now is because you've created a separation. You have turned from him and you long for forgiveness and restoration. This is similar to Jesus. Come unto me all you who are weary and heavy laden and I'll give you rest. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness and the Beatitudes, same concept. The requirement for entry the salvation is simply the honesty to recognize your profound need and hunger and thirst. And that you want the right object. We, we live in a world where advertisements try to create thirst in this sense, desire for all sorts of other things. And, and you can lay awake at night just trying to figure out a way to balance the budget to get the new car or the fishing boat. That You can hunger and thirst for all sorts of things. Given the Old Testament language, Christ is saying he is something for people who hunger and thirst for God, who hunger and thirst for salvation, who hunger and thirst for forgiveness and restoration. That's the invitation. That's who he's speaking to. Frequently, this is the hardest part in evangelism is getting people to recognize they're not all that in a bag of chips, that they, they are thirsting. People die of thirst and die of hunger because they won't confess they are wasting away and dying. 
if, if you're not sure if that's where you're at, I'd suggest you reading some of the law, reading the Ten Commandments, reading God's righteous requirements, and seeing plainly how the things you love and serve and worship and pursue have created the separation. And, and stop kidding yourself with thoughts that God is just going to take you just as you are. There's a half-truth to that. He, he offers to anyone who thirsts just as they are. But, but now let's move from his invitation to what his prescription is. What, what if you meet the first condition, I, I need help. I am not at peace with God. I need forgiveness. I need restoration. I long for it. I yearn for it. That's what I want. Okay, what do you do? And again, the answer could be a lot of different things. Go bathe in the Jordan River seven times is what Nathan Naaman gets told to deal with his leprosy. Go perform a rite. Some of the Jews of Jesus' day and in the early church thought, well, go get circumcised. That's what you need to do. Jesus' invitation and his prescription here, his prescription is, is simple and profound. Let him come to me and drink. And again, we're using the language of metaphor. And so we need to unpack what that means. What does it mean to come to Jesus? And what does it mean to drink of Jesus? This is the crucial point. Well, coming to Jesus metaphorically suggests movement, right? Movement. I mean, if I've, I, in the straightforward sense, if I, if I call my son, hey, come over here, come to me, he's got to move. So even as Jesus' gospel reaches out to people wherever they are, Jesus goes to Samaritans right where they are in Sychar. Jesus goes to the, the dirtiest, broken people. There is still a call of movement on their part. What is being spoken of here? Let me read to you John Piper's, um, I think, excellent help in his book, What is Saving Faith? He writes this, this motion. It is the motion of God-given thirst putting lips to the fountain of received water. It is the motion of God-given hunger placing its tongue on the richness of received bread. It is the motion of an embrace opening its arms to enclose the received Savior. It is the motion of leaning into the light of received glory. It is the motion of the glad and eager soul opening the door for the friend and helping and helper and Lord and teacher. John wants to emphasize that we never put down the cup of living water as though we've had enough. We never lay aside the loaf of heaven's bread as though we were stuffed. We never pull the curtain on the light of the world that we've seen because we've seen enough glory now. Believing doesn't do that. Faith is constantly receiving and constantly coming. Christ is ever giving of himself as food and drink and light for our souls. He's getting the light language from chapter 8. I'm the light of the world. We'll get to that. And these are, these are various metaphors, but coming is, is a coming to, and, and when you move, you're, you're moving towards something, but you're also moving from something. T- turn back to chapter three, because my blank here is, what does it mean to come? Forsaking all else, draw near to him. Forsaking all else, draw near to him. John three, after Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus, where John 3.16 is laid out. We get a summary of what's happened. Why, why doesn't Nicodemus come? Why do people like Nicodemus not come? Nicodemus will come to Christ, but not here. Verse 19, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. So there's a picture of Jesus coming to you. Light's coming to the world. And people love the darkness rather than the light because their works are evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light. There's that language in movement. 
lest his work should be exposed. What stops someone from moving to Jesus? I, I, I like this other thing. <laughs> Thank you very much. And I don't want to leave it. Verse 21, but whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So coming to Christ is a metaphorical movement and it's leaving whatever it is you are loving and serving, worshiping, building your life upon, and coming to him. Coming to him, forsaking all, coming to and drawing near to him. This is, this is the same concept bound up in a similar word picture in Jeremiah 2.13, using thirst language again. My people have committed two evils, Jeremiah writes. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn out cisterns for themselves. Cisterns, a, a pit you dig and line with clay to catch rainwater. So on the one hand, we've got a, a living stream. Living, by the way, meaning moving, bubbling. It's not stagnant. Already, a living fountain is better than a cistern that at most can capture stagnant rainwater. But we, we further learn in Jeremiah that these cisterns, that they've, so they've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have hewn out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Cisterns with cracks in them drain out, and all you're left with is a mud puddle, some damp earth. And the picture is God is an abundant fountain of blessing and living waters, and we've said no thank you, and we're over crawling on the ground with our face to the dirt, sucking a little moisture out of some damp mud. And Jesus says, if, if you're thirsty, if you're willing to recognize that's not a good plan, that's not working out very well, and you'd like living waters, come, come to me. But there's no point in saying, I'm going to stay here with my face to the ground in the mud, and I'd like some of that living water, please. Come to Christ. Leave your cisterns. Come to him. Come to him. So come to Christ, forsaking all else, draw near to him, and drink. What's that mean? It means receive and savor Jesus Christ. Take him in. The concept of drinking is the notion of imbibing, taking something in, right? Letting it come within you, letting it do its work. How do you, how do you know you find something appetizing? If you're thirsty, you, you crack open the can of soda or whatever it is you want to drink, and you take a deep, long pull from it. Uh, we talk about the proof being in the pudding. Come to Christ and receive Christ. Take him in. Drink from him. This is the language that Scripture uses in the Old Testament in numerous places. Um, in Isaiah, we read, um, Isaiah 12, You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away, that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid, for the Lord God is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. So Christ's invitation, if you thirst, recognize your need. Come to him. Turn from whatever else it is that you're worshiping and loving and serving and come to him and receive and savor him. Find satisfaction in him. Jesus is saying, I can satisfy what you want. You, you want forgiveness? I can give you that. You want restoration with God? I can give you that. Come and take that from me. Receive and savor Jesus Christ. Well, what does Jesus then promise to those who do that? 
So, so to, to reset, we have the setting, pinnacle day, Feast of Booths. The week-long celebrations come to an end. All week long, Israel's been reminded, it is God who gives. It is God who supplies what you need. It is God you look to for the very food you eat. Just as you trusted him for 40 years in the wilderness, you look to him, and then Christ stands up and he says, if you hunger, I mean, sorry, if you thirst, that was chapter six, I was slipping back in my brain to chapter six. If you thirst, come to me. If, if you find yourself guilty and separated from God, it is God who gives you what you need. Just as it is God who causes the crop to grow, who gives the rain. So what, is, what does he give? Whoever, what, is his, what is his promise? What is his promise? In verse 38, we see that whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Wow. Two things here. One's implied. Point A. The implied promise is a total satiation and satisfaction of spiritual thirst. The reason why I say that's implied is he doesn't explicitly say that. He moves on to the bigger and grander and more immense promise. But there's a clear implication. Hey, if you're thirsty, come and drink. Implied It'll deal with your thirst. So let's not skip over that. This is the same language used to the woman at the well in John 4. Whoever drinks of the water, he says, that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So the the promise is that need of forgiveness, that need of restoration, the ending of alienation, he will end and it will endure And the reason it will endure, moving on to point B, is because it will become a superabundant and self-replenishing source of life. A superabundant and self-replenishing source of life. You don't need to come back to Jesus again and again saying, give me another drink, give me another drink, because when you come the first time, he he causes... But the woman at the well, notice the escalation. Woman at the well, he says, a spring of water welling up within him. So he's first introduced the notion a self-replenishing source of life in chapter 4. Here, he turns it from a spring to rivers, plural. Rivers. Notice Notice the climax. Escalation. This is an immense promise. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And One other observation. Jesus clearly puts believing in him as another way of describing those who come to him, those who drink of him. So we're talking about the same thing. John is again, what does it mean to really believe? What does it mean? Well, it means something like coming to Jesus. It means something like drinking from Jesus. In John chapter 6, it means something like eating bread. John is again and again and again holding up saving faith as something we can look at from different angles to get a clear vision of. And the promise here is staggering. You can have forgiveness of your sins And peace with God. That thirst, that longing for salvation can be yours right now in Christ if you'll come to him and drink from him. And Jesus is crying this out to all of gathered Israel. Hear me, he says. If you can just acknowledge your thirst, I can quench it. More than that, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. A total, a superabundant and self-replenishing source of life. This, this is staggering. What does he mean by rivers? 
at least two things. I'll mention one of them now and one of them in a little bit. If Jesus wanted to express the sense that you will never run out of water, this water source will never dry up, I can't think of a, of a greater saying he could use than plural rivers. I mean, the picture is almost ridiculous of, of someone with you being the headwaters of plural rivers. So apparently what he said to the woman about a spring of water welling up to eternal life, he wants to make absolutely clear. This salvation he gives will never run out and run dry. There will be a ridiculous superabundance of water. I don't care who you are. You don't need rivers of water continuously to stay satiated and to drink. But Jesus says you'll get rivers anyway. And they'll go with you wherever you are because they'll be indwelling. You will have this eternal life within you. And it's equated like rivers. So the, the first picture is just of a super, super abundant, lavish, over-the-top, opulent supply of water. Don't, don't miss that. It's not like you'll have just enough to stop you from dying. You're going to have rivers, plural. I'll get to the second implication a little later. I want to before I get to that, turn to the quotation, as the scripture has said. So Jesus is saying his promise is rooted in the Old Testament. This isn't just something he's pulling out of the air. And a lot of Bible translators and, and students have wrestled with this because, to be, to be quite honest, Jesus isn't clearly quoting any Old Testament passage. There is, if you grab your concordance and look rivers, living water, you might find a couple passages, and they won't involve promises of the Holy Spirit or promises of salvation. So what is Jesus doing? I would suggest to you that even though this is not a quote of a single passage, Jesus is summarizing and synthesizing um, a, a totality of biblical teaching. Jesus is saying, and otherwise, if you've studied and read your Old Testament, the scriptures, you'll know this is what they communicate. This is what they teach. Okay, how so? And briefly, we'll move quickly. Three points. In the Old Testament, salvation is regularly spoken of in these terms. What do I mean by terms? Liquid terms, water terms, well terms, drinking terms. Let me just read to you two examples. Isaiah 12, we've already heard. With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. So likening salvation to drinking water and that God will provide this water is nothing new. Turn to Isaiah 55, please. Isaiah 55. This might be one of the passages Jesus has in mind. Glorious text. And when you picture Jesus crying out in the temple, it, it, it's in keeping. It's, it's in one piece with Isaiah 55 and numerous other passages. Isaiah 55. Come, everyone who thirsts. Sound familiar? Come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Jeremy's translation, why do you spend your life pursuing idols and things that will not give you what you need, that will not satisfy you? Why, why do you weary yourself? Listen diligently to me. And eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. 
here that your soul may live. I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. It's a free offer. And it's the same, same message. What, what, you're thirsty. Why, why are you spending your time sucking moisture out of damp mud? Come, come. I've, I have water. Here's more water, food, wine. And, and again, it's a picture of total over-the-top provision. Everything you would need. Richly furnished. That's, that's one place. So salvation in numerous passages, including the Jeremiah 2.13, my people have forsaken living waters, is spoken of in this way. So the notion of, does the Old Testament regularly speak of salvation as, as like water and thirst? Yes, it does. Now we know from verse 39, this is about the Holy Spirit. So does the Old Testament speak about the Holy Spirit using liquid terms at all? Yes, it does. Very quickly, give you a couple examples. Isaiah 44, 3. I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring. In fact, the whole notion of the, of the Christ, right? What is Christ? Christ is Greek. Hebrew is Messiah. What does that mean in English? What, is, what does Christ and Messiah mean in English? Anointed liquid language. The whole point, the picture, you take oil and you pour it on someone's head. You anoint them. You've poured a liquid on them. And the Messiah is anointed with the Spirit of God. So the whole, even the picture of the Messiah or the Christ involves the metaphor of the one who has had the Spirit poured upon him of God. There's your liquid picture. Um, give you um, two other examples. One other example. Zechariah 12.10. Um, great passage. I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace. And please for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. firstborn. So to summarize what I'm saying, in what sense does the scripture teach this? Well, first, there's nothing new about referring to salvation, restoration with God, as drinking deeply from water, needing water, being thirsty, being given an abundant supply of water. Second, the Spirit is regularly referred to in terms of, li- of liquid. Li- so the notion of comparing the Spirit to a river or a well is nothing new. And then finally, if you'll turn to Joel, not, not Pastor Joel over there, but, but Joel the prophet um, in, in the Old Testament. If you turn to Joel, this comes to a headwaters, pardon the pun, in Joel chapter 2. In Joel chapter 2, we get this promise in verse 28. It shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young women shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. So why do I pick this passage? Well, because in verse verse 39, and you, you can move now to our final point, John's explanation. We get commentary from John. So verses 37 and 38 are what Jesus said. He cries out. And John wants to give some sort of explanation. And I think it's in part because this language of rivers is so over the top that he needs to give some explanation for it. And he says, now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, 
For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. And in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit falls upon the disciples at Pentecost, it's Joel chapter 2 that's quoted. So John says the Spirit hadn't been given yet. Because Jesus wasn't glorified. And when the Spirit's given, what passes? They point to Joel. God pouring out his Spirit. So to, to, to summarize what I'm trying to say is, the Old Testament teaches that God provides the waters of life, that God provides salvation, that God gives his spirit. And there's a promise that at some point in the future, in the latter days, Joel says, I'll pour my spirit on everybody. And that lavishness of that promise is so great that Jesus can liken it to rivers. That's the teaching. The Old, that's not the Old Testament teach that God will pour out his spirit and his salvation so richly that you could summarize it like rivers coming out of them. That's, that's my understanding. So John's explanation. This he said about the Spirit. The this, by the way, I think referring to the rivers. I I think the immediate satisfaction was offered to everyone present. I think he offered immediate satisfaction of thirst to the woman at the well, to the Samaritans of Sychar, to those who had eaten the bread that he had multiplied in John chapter 6. I think it's this river language that is future-looking when Jesus speaks. It's in the rearview mirror for us because we're living 2,000 years on from Pentecost, But when Jesus speaks at the Feast of Booths, it's forward-looking. So John's explanation, this he said about the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. Moving quickly. For as yet the Spirit had not been given. So, you're blank. This promise would be fulfilled at Pentecost. This promise would be fulfilled at Pentecost. And here's where I want to tease out the, the second implication of rivers. I suggest to you, what's the purpose of moving from a well with a spring to plural rivers. One, super abundant supply. You, you, will I have enough water to drink? You will have rivers. I don't think anyone would say, well, I'm not, will that be enough? I mean, that's, it, it answers the question. There is also an implication from rivers of it proceeding outward. I mean, a well is self-contained. So when Jesus says to the woman at the well, they'll come into him a well springing up to eternal life. Some wells overflow, but most wells, once they're dug and set up, are, are stationary. You've got to come to the well. Rivers go places. They, they flood out. And he's saying, you're going to be the headwaters. And I think that's something we pretty plainly see in Acts 2, don't we? What happens after the Spirit falls upon Peter and the disciples? Peter preaches a sermon. And what does Peter offer at the end of his sermon? Acts chapter 2, verse 36 Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? They recognized their need, right? And Peter said to them, repent. Be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourself from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about three thousand souls and i think we can see standing back that peter at least did become a river didn't he and the spirit in the words of his mouth as he proclaimed the gospel of jesus christ spread out to three thousand others as he promises you too will receive the holy spirit 
And so I think a second implication of this river's language is that what Jesus is offering is not just that you'll receive and be a, a, a reservoir, but you'll be a conduit for others. That the, the grace of God and the salvation given will be so abundant and so richly furnished that it'll flow out from you. I think at the very least, those of us reading, hearing what John says, referencing Pentecost, there has to be something of that in our minds. And then point B here. So, actually before point B, the promise would be fulfilled at Pentecost. The Spirit spread to others through the words of Peter. You could even say the Spirit flowed to others through the words of Peter. And then point B, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Um, And by glorified, John's referencing Jesus was not yet crucified and raised from the dead. And so here we get the cross as being central to what Jesus promises. It's not central in his talking to the woman at the well. We, We know what he means. But here, John's addition of this ties the cross to this. Everything Jesus has said so far is true and good and right, but we need to understand that it's only because of the crucifixion that Christ can offer to satiate your thirst, your longing. It's only because of his glorification and his suffering that he can offer the Spirit in such lavish terms. So very quickly, Jesus' death pays for the new covenant. Jesus' death pays for the new covenant. Turn back to John. Go to 17. We'll end there. Um, Jeremiah 31 talks about a new covenant, God putting a spirit within us. We know the giving of the new, the new covenant. We know the giving of the Holy Spirit in this lavish way is tied explicitly to the new covenant. We know from our study of Luke's gospel that Jesus says this cup, and he institutes the Lord's Supper, is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus' blood purchases, makes possible the new covenant. But I want to show you in John's gospel how Jesus being glorified is tied up with his crucifixion. This is an an oblique way for John to reference Jesus' crucifixion. That's what he's saying. So let's look at John 17. I'll try to sum this up and then we'll sing our closing song. Yeah, we have time. Good. Okay. Now all throughout John's gospel, the hour is not yet, the hour is not yet, the hour is near. Finally, John 17, when Jesus had spoken these words, He lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. What's he talking about? This is the night before the crucifixion. They're going to come and arrest him in a few hours. When Jesus talks about being glorified, he's talking about being lifted up on a cross with nails through his hands and feet, scourged, mocked, bloodied and that's not the half of it that's the part we can see the part of the agony that he most dreads is father why have you forsaken me as he takes upon himself on the cross our sin this gift that jesus offers is only possible because he was glorified and being glorified in john's gospel means crucified the hour has come Glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all that you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you. The one, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, 
Glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. How, did, how does Jesus return to the Father? By means of the cross. He's lifted up, he's crucified, he's raised from the dead, and he ascends to the right hand in glory. And so in that little phrase, he had not yet been glorified. John's tying Jesus' offer clearly, for those who've read the gospel or reread it, to the crucifixion. And we know that Jesus' offer is only made possible by means of that. Jesus was glorified through his death and resurrection. So let me, let me try to summarize, and then we'll call the worship team up for a closing song. Jesus has a gospel offer to anyone who meets one and only one condition. Jesus' gospel offers for those who meet the condition of thirsting, who want, who desire forgiveness and restoration with God. That's the only qualification. Sadly, it can be a steep one because this is what proud, self-sufficient, self-made people with high self-esteem think. And they, they, they want to demand God accept them as they are and leave them as they are because they're little sunbeams. Rather, we are the people who have separated ourselves from God. We're in a dry and weary land because we've set out. We've abandoned the living water. We've been sucking moisture out of damp mud in a desert. And Jesus said, can you, can you acknowledge your thirsty? Can you acknowledge your need? Can you not be distracted by the next promotion, by your vacation, by the car you want? Can you recognize the one thing I need is I need peace with God. I need a clean conscience. I need to be restored to my creator. I need to not fear death and judgment. That's, that's what I need. Jesus says, okay, if that's what you need, if you thirst, I got something for you. What do I have to do? Come to him. Come to him. Come, turn from whatever it is you've been worshiping and serving and come to him and receive and drink and savor and find satisfaction. Jesus is saying, if you come to me this way, you will immediately have peace with God. Paul in Romans 5.1, therefore, having been justified by faith, we are having peace with God. You can have peace with God this morning. And a peace that will not run out next week, but will be likened to a plural rivers flowing from you as he gives you his spirit, as he satisfies and sustains you. And ultimately, we see through Peter, these rivers, actually, you can be a conduit reaching to others, reaching to others. And then we learn that all this is made possible because Jesus is heading to a cross where he'll be glorified. This isn't something he can hand out freely, full stop. It has to be bought, has to be paid for, and it was paid for by his blood on the cross. That's, if, you're, if you're wondering why do Christians make such a big deal of the cross, that's why. Rivers, plural, of grace and life that can be yours and yours were bought on the cross. Let's close in order of prayer. I'll call the worship team up. We'll sing our closing song. Lord God. Give us the grace to see our need. Give us the humility to recognize our desperate situation. Give us the awareness of our separation from you that our sin has caused. Give us a focus that we not be distracted by other things, mud puddles. Give us a faith to trust that in Christ we will find the satisfaction of our longing, the satiation and quenching of our thirst, and help us to come to him and drink deeply 
and never stop drinking. That it might well up within us into eternal life. Rivers that through your purposes would flow and spread to others. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.